Happy Christmas morning, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Over the coming hour, we'll have some wonderful music, chat, stories, and thoughtful reflections for this Christmas morning from a diverse group of people from all over Ireland. But to kick us off, we're so lucky to have with us in the studio St Mary's Pro Cathedral Girls Choir, directed by Blon and Murphy, with Niall Kinsler on piano, singing the Ukrainian Christmas song, The Little Swallow, which here in Ireland we know as Carol of the Bells. Gorgeous. Thank you very, very much. We'll have a chat with a couple of the girls from the choir in a little while. But first, again, you're very welcome if you're tuning in to this special edition of The Leap of Faith this Christmas morning. In a moment, we'll hear more from the girls' choir, several original pieces of new work written especially for this morning by Leilo Thebe, John O'Donnell and Roisin Meany. And also some beautiful traditional music for this Christmas morning from Leisha Kelly and Nell Nichronin. But first, a few of the people joining me in the studio for this morning's show. Father Peter McVerry is a Jesuit priest working with people experiencing homelessness. The Reverend Philip McKinley is curate assistant in Dunboyne and Rathmoylan Parish Group in County Meath and seconded to the Centre of Mission at St Bridget's Cathedral in Kildare. And Professor Shifra Pierce is head of the School of Languages, Cultures and Linguistics at University College Dublin. You're all very welcome. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you, Thank you. Shifra, you've spent as many Christmases abroad as at home, having family all over the world. What is it like to be in Dublin? Oh, I absolutely love being in Dublin for Christmas, actually, Siobhan. Um, I have some lovely stories of when I was small, going to my great-grandmother's house in, in Dublin after midnight service, and we'd uh, pop across the road and she'd uh, prepare the boxty. Boxty's from, from Leitrim, and my great-granny Carter was from Leitrim, so she would uh, grate the, the potato and mix it with flour and lots of butter and she'd fry it up. And do you know when you're small, there's nothing like 
eating fried pancake. In the middle of the night, you've been let stay up really late and you come into this and I honestly thought, I thought this is what adults did all the time. I thought this was, <laughs> this was Christmas. So actually, I've lovely memories of, of Irish Christmases over the years. Peter, you're on record as not liking Christmas. <laughs> well, most of the people I, I, I work with don't like Christmas. In, in fact, they hate Christmas. A lot of them would tell me they would love to fall asleep on the 1st of December and wake up on the 1st of January. Mm-hmm. And I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, one, when you're homeless, the first thing that goes is your self-esteem. You are treated very often as of little or no value and you come to believe you're of little or no value. So it's very important for homeless people to dress up at Christmas, to have new clothes, for example, to, so that they can hold their head high or to give presents to their children or presents to their brothers and sisters and they don't have the money for it. So under huge financial pressure. And the other aspect of Christmas for them is their image of Christmas is of everybody at home enjoying themselves, pulling crackers, eating turkey, happy family. Now that's not the reality for some families, but that's the image they have. And they're excluded from that. So it's a time when they feel their aloneness uh, much more acutely than during the rest of the year. Mm. So... I can't enjoy Christmas because they can't enjoy Christmas. <laughs> and I too wish, you know, as I say today, Christmas now, thank God, is 365 days away. <laughs> so I'm delighted when Christmas is over. The pressures are, it's so much pressure oh, in so terrible. many different it's ways terrible. for so many people. Yeah, yeah. It is terrible. Philip, you were saying mass and or participating in the service at eleven o'clock mm-hmm. last night. Will you be I'm having off again. to go again Straight after this? Yeah, so it's busy for you too in yeah. a different way. Yeah, it's manic in lots of different ways for lots of different people, and that's a kind of good busy, I guess. Uh, and and I mean, commercial aspects of Christmas are just so dominant now. But on the other hand, uh, there is that engagement with with a. a you know, a countercultural message, um, the message of the Virgin Mary, the Magnificat, that uh, the powerful are are rendered humble, and and you know th- there is still a beautiful touching point with that. So, Christmas still resonates, uh, and it's chaos all around in so many different sectors in so many different ways. Um, but it would be beautiful just to hold on to the the peace message uh, and peace in our homes, peace in the world uh, of today. And then have a good old snooze on uh, this afternoon. (laughs) I think wishes for peace this year are particularly acute. Uh, I think the war in Ukraine has dominated pretty much the whole year. Um, But also uh, housing and homelessness and the multiple experiences of homelessness. And um, we... We'll turn now to Lelo, Lelo Thebe, because your experience is of a different sort of displacement, but which has equally strong uh, difficulties and which it's really important to think about at this time of year. Because Lelo is a contributor to the Immigrant Women's Library of Ireland at the Irish Writers' Centre. And originally from Zimbabwe, uh, she is now a resident at the Direct Provision Centre in Ballyhonas in County Mayo. And you're very welcome on this Christmas morning to the Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me this Christmas morning. Um, it, it means a lot to be here and to think that this will be officially my first Christmas celebration. 
Uh, it has been so difficult to celebrate Christmas uh, for myself. Growing up, Christmas was usually a time of rest uh, where people just stopped working and we had food. Uh, that, that was it. But now it's different uh, for my daughter. She wants her Christmas presents. Um, she wants Santa to come to her house. Uh, she's got a lot of expectations, but it's been so difficult for me being in direct provision um, to provide for her. So we've had um, Marcy that uh, that goes around doing donations to all direct provisions. And we're very lucky in Balhanes because we, we have these big houses that we share as families so we can set up a place and have a tree and we can create a place for Sunday to come and drop the gifts. So that that means a lot. And yeah. How old's your daughter? She's six years old. Oh, perfect yeah. for the magic. <laughs> oh, yes, all oh, the magic. And uh, I think in the previous years, uh, being in direct provision, I've, uh, I haven't celebrated Christmas um Sometimes I think I, I told her, oh, Santa will come. Let's just wait for Santa to come. Uh, Santa will be here, you know. And then when Santa comes, it's, it's one gift, which is perfect. She's happy with that. But this year, uh, she's able to write. So she's got a list. <laughs> she's got a list and the list is, is, is endless. Literacy has its perils. <laughs> yes. So she looks forward to Santa delivering on that. And many children in direct provision, you know, they're, they're waiting for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're excited for it. So um, as parents as well, we try to make it exciting and so that they can have their moment, you know, keep that magic for them just happening. It's important for the children. I've also heard you speak about how Ballyhornas is slightly different from, but importantly different from other direct provision centres because you can cook your own food there and food is such an important part of life at any time of year, but especially Yeah, at at any time of the year. I think it's important. Uh, Food is part of our culture. Food is who we are. We eat almost every day. So if you have that part where you can cook for yourself, create your own meals, have something from home, um, and and have it in the kitchen to to have that. It's important. I, I always say that uh, Balhonis is the five star of direct provision. <laughs> it's not the best, but we have we have a bedroom and we have a living room. We share a kitchen. Um, we can cook. We can grab groceries. Uh, when people donate, some people come and donate food. Uh, you can go to African shops and just pick up some African food and be able to create that and uh, make food that everyone can enjoy. It's uh, That's the most important part. But in other direct provision centres, they do not have uh, facilities to cook their own food. You mentioned uh, buying African food. And, of course, Ballyhornis is over 60% of its population is 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 from migrant um, arrivals into Ireland, yes. many of whom uh, gravitate eventually to, to Ballyhornis. And I believe you have a reference to the, this, this unusual situation, this small town um, in East Mayo hosting these many different um, people and cultures in the piece that you're going to read for us. Yeah, I'm going to share a piece about uh, Balihanis. Uh, we call it Bali Happiness because there's mix of like when you go to schools in in in, in Balihanis, there is every nationality there you'll find uh, kids from uh, Syria from Nigeria from Zimbabwe South Africa which is a great thing and we had a um, a Miss Ireland uh, Miss Ireland last year uh, Pamela Uber she was in Kwadagani in, uh, in 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 Balihanis and she she went she was living in direct provision and she went on to become Miss Ireland 
which is which is a great achievement to be yeah, to be in that position. Yeah. The, the town has much to be proud of. Ah, oh, the town has got mm. massive talent. So let's hear about Bali Happiness. Yeah, I'm going to share my piece now. Uh, so this is Bali Happiness. I'm taking you to Bali this Christmas. Yeah, Bali Harness. We call it Bali Happiness, our village of joy in the middle of the green fields, lakes, bogs and beautiful country lanes. The town shines bright in the Christmas lights, welcoming everyone to Mayor. From the mosque to the parish, prayers go up for those we love. It's a season to spend time with the loved ones, no matter what culture you come from. The most diverse town in Ireland, filled with culture and traditions. We come together to celebrate our music, food and our different languages. We share the story of our lives over bacon and cabbage, biryani rice, kibe bil sané and pap and vose. We are far from home, but home we are. Being away from our relatives means you have to make family around you. Friends turn into family members. Strangers become friends. This does not come easy for those in direct provision centres who are separated from the Irish community. They have little choice about what they can eat or where they sleep. Their lives are in limbo. We pray for those who cannot cook their own dinners this Christmas. Food is such a special part of the season. At Christmas, we love to see people smiling and happiness being spread to all. It shouldn't matter about your background. We all belong to a place, and that place we call Balihanis in County Mayor. We are learning to celebrate those who are different from us with respect, love, and dignity. In the words of Malidome Some, in the face of global chaos, the only possible hope we have is self-transformation. The world is becoming smaller. People from different realities can benefit from learning about and accepting each other. The respect of our differences only works if we are connected with the vision of togetherness. This Christmas, let us be kinder to each other. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much. We have another Mayo woman at the table this morning. Happy Christmas to you. And to you. Um, Leisha Kelly is an acclaimed harpist and recording artist and winner of T.G. Carr's Gradham Keol. And you're from the west of the county, from Westport originally, but now living on Ackill Island. I believe Westport has taken a thousand, over a thousand Ukrainian refugees yeah. into a town of about 6,000 people. I believe so. And yeah. there's plenty uh, of uh, great U- U- Ukrainians in, in Ackle too. Is that so? Yeah, in Greece. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're all very welcome. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And you have a piece of music lined up for us to play here this morning, uh, which is also touching on themes of homelessness, mm. of displacement, of being, as Peter said earlier, the, the, the trouble of of not having a place that's home yeah. on Christmas morning. Well, I discovered this tune in the Edward Bunting collection and he was um, 19 years of age in 1792 when he was commissioned by members of the, the great United Irishmen um, who had great ideals um, 
for equality for all, uh, including women in the 1790s. They were a very forward thinking group, but also they were very aware of the uh, ancient harping tradition that was dying out. And they got Edward to take down the tunes from harpers that they gathered for the harp festival. And I've been particularly interested in, in the repertoire of Hugh Higgins, who was the Mayo harper attending. And this is one of his tunes. Now, uh, when I say one of his tunes is actually classified as very ancient. So he didn't um, compose it himself, but he carried the tune and for, uh, we're thanks to him, we have it. Uh, and to Edward Bunting. And I love that journey of discovery mm-hmm. of how this little tune has managed to find its way. And I've, it's come back to life um, with a title that's for our times called My Lodgings Uncertain Wherever I Go, mm-hmm. which is the same the same story and the Christmas story and the story for so many here and um, and also for the musicians <laughs> we're always you have to look for a bed every time you go for your gig so um, but I've loved this tune the melody I, I've kept the same as what came off the page but I've kind of interpreted it uh, so hopefully uh Bring it, bring it back, bring it back to life. And the composer is is brought back to life, speaking again through mm. the music yeah. on this this theme, as you say, very apt for this morning. And where are these pages? Oh, they're everywhere. Okay. <laughs> they're for everybody. I love them. Okay. They're amazing. Yeah. Oh. And when you're when you're looking at the collection, like you say, that it's available to everybody. Do you do you? Just feel like a tune is saying, pick me, yeah, pick me. Like the donkey in Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> they are. When you're flicking the pages, I'm sure they're all saying to me, pick me. They're all bursting to come we back. We want to come back. Plus, they, they must have been, you know, hot tunes of the time to be have been played. So they've been saved. So they were just waiting for their time to shine again. Yeah. Alicia uh, Kelly is going to play for us. My lodgings uncertain wherever I go.
Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks. We have another really accomplished musician with us here in the studio this morning. Um, Philip, you have... uh, done so much in addition to your own playing which is beautiful you've done so much to give um, a space to the voices of um, immigrants to Ireland through music and to sections of Irish society that may not be known for their music and I'm thinking particularly of your work as founder of the Discovery Gospel Choir but I hear that on Christmas morning on this day in years past, you had a, a, a music ministry in prisons. How did that go? Yeah, so, well, the choir was founded in 2004 and, and we used to have a tradition of going to Mantroy Prison. There was a lovely Church of Ireland chapel there until about 2013 when it, it sadly closed. But uh, this was one of the parts of, of what the choir had, had done and <clears throat> we're made up of about 17 different nationalities and we had our Christmas concert over in, in December. We've got uh, two members in the choir at the moment, both called Zhenya, and one's from Ukraine, one's from Russia. And they did a whole piece on the need for peace and the call for peace. And we even have a choir member who's gone and is in Dnipro and volunteering in Ukraine at the moment. So uh, that theme of welcome and outreach and that you can have social policy and you can have government policy and this and the other, there's something about four-part harmony that melts the heart and that speaks to the heart because sometimes these are not issues which um, which are, are necessarily won through um, through debate or sometimes it's the the experience of music. We are a deeply musical, cultural, artistic country, and there's something that resonates in the subconscious. Uh, that is about welcome because that's who we are as as a nation. That's a you know, Cade Mirafalcha. We say it around the, around the world, uh, part of our branding, and it it but it is real, uh, and and it's unlocking the truth and the 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 richness and the goodness of the Irish people. Uh, to welcome people from Ukraine, to welcome people in direct provision, to welcome people who are living in homelessness, that we are a welcoming people, and just to resonate that through four-part harmony. So that's what Discovery Gospel Choir is all about. Peter, does music or any of the arts sustain you in your work? And what does sustain you in your This is hard work over a long time. What sustains yeah, you? Yeah, no, there was never much music in our family, I'm afraid. So I didn't grow up in a musical tradition. Uh, I say Mass in Wheatfield Prison every Sunday and we have a little we've had a little choir there at times uh, but the problem is they kept getting released (laughs) 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 so I suggest we name the choir One Direction because they're only going in one direction and that's out <laughs> so, are, are you there today? I am. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I love being there, and it 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 really is. It it really is great. Uh, so, what sustains me? Uh, homeless people themselves sustain me because you build relationships, and those relationships are very important uh, for them and for me. Uh, and people say, "How do you keep going for so long?" You just can't abandon those relationships. You just can't give them up. Uh, sometimes I say, well, if I ever stop working with homeless people, they might send me teaching. <laughs> so I better continue. <laughs> but uh, no, it's the relationships you build. And 
You know, there are a lot of little joys. We have about 600 apartments where we can give a homeless person the key of the door and say, this is yours for the rest of your life. And just to see the joy on the face of a homeless person when they move into their apartment, uh, it's like a dream come true. They can't believe it. Uh, And it's little things like that that keep you going and make you realise this work is, is, is really well worthwhile. We've been quite slow in this country, haven't we, to appreciate the value of a house for homeless people that, you know, the focus on homelessness for so long has been about addiction and destitution. And of course, there are there are um, issues for anybody who has any struggles in life. They're rarely singular. But it is a, so much about housing, isn't it? It is. Uh, and the majority of homeless people don't have an addiction. That's the myth that exists mm, amongst yeah. the public's mind. Majority of people becoming homeless today are being evicted from the private rented sector. Either the rents have gone too high and they can't afford it or the landlord says they're selling the, the flat. So the, yeah. the group with the largest with the largest number of homeless people today is the not to four age group children who are homeless 3,500 of them who are homeless with their families living in hotel rooms in bed and breakfast in family hubs Uh, they don't have an addiction problem all they have is the only problem they have is they don't have enough money to be able to go out and get themselves alternative accommodation because that alternative accommodation either doesn't exist or it's too expensive and they end up between the cracks they end up uh, in, in homelessness so and the damage done to children who are homeless is well documented they become very depressed they can become very stressed uh, they lose interest in school they don't have anywhere to do homework uh, it's, it's, it's emotionally psychologically and educationally uh, damaging for, for children and some of them are in homelessness maybe for, for many months or even several years I mean, it's 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 really it's it's that that part of it is very very depressing. You mentioned that um, you, if things if things went wrong, you might end up teaching, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she for commiserations uh, like myself, you, you you teaching is a part of what you have ended up doing. But you've also written a book on turmoil. Tell us about what you've what what you've learned about turmoil through your research and writing. Oh, thanks, Siobhan. Yes, I mean, listening to to Peter there, uh, I guess you come across a lot of people who are traumatised, Peter. Um, and I decided to look with my lovely PhD student Emma Dunn at turmoil because turmoil is kind of everyday bad things. So it can be insecurity, it can be instability, it can be homelessness, it can be exile. Um, And what we decided to do was to study it to try and identify what effects it had on on people, on society and events. And I'm an 18th century person, so I really enjoyed Leisha's 18th century piece. And this book actually that we wrote is actually uh, set in the 18th century. But the idea of turmoil is it's a universal. So we discovered that if you have an event that is turmoil, a paradigm shift happens. So I'm going to give the example of Notre Dame Cathedral because we all remember the day Notre Dame burnt down. And it was a horrible moment. Um, luckily, nobody died. But it was an event that we would classify as turmoil. If you think about it, your whole perception of Paris now has changed forever. Anybody who's religious was absolutely just broken to the heart that day because of the symbolism of the ancientness of that Catholic Church and its tradition. But people of no religion and all religion were shocked. 
But we got beyond it. And it's that adaptation that we found in our ontology of turmoil. Turmoil leads to resilience and adaptation. And in fact, what's amazing about humans, even if we suffer homelessness or suffer immigration or suffer exile, it can lead to a positive ending in the sense that we actually are very resilient as people. We tend to adapt and to just have a new normal. And I'm very conscious of that around COVID. We're all coming out of COVID now. And again, that paradigm of turmoil lets us realise that, yes, we've been through a moment of instability, a moment of insecurity, really difficult for many people, but that we are resilient as humans and we will adapt and change. Is that, though, conditional on having a certain degree of support structures? Because if too much goes at once, then you may not survive it. We, you may not adapt. Absolutely, Siobhan. And that's the difference between trauma and turmoil. Trauma really does impact terribly and needs special supports. That leads us quite well into our next guest, uh, John O'Donnell, poet, writer and barrister. He contributes to A Word in Edgeways, the early morning reflection on RTE Radio 1 and is a prize-winning poet who has published um, from the time that you were in school, I believe, and you have five poetry collections, the latest of which is called Americans Anonymous, and also you have a new collection of short stories called Almost the Same Blue. That's right. Happy Christmas, uh, Siobhan, and, and happy Christmas to everyone else. And to you too. You know a thing or two about turmoil. Well, it's funny um, that when Father Peter was talking about you know the people in prison, I'm, I'm working as a lawyer, and I would see a lot of people who are right out there at the edges of, of the, the traumatic experience. So, yes. And I understand that you were recently at a writers' festival in Tbilisi about what constitutes a home. So sort of trying to piece together how, how in all sorts of different lives we, we make home. Yeah, th- this was fascinating. Tbilisi, as you know, is the capital of Georgia. And there were a number of what might have been called Eastern European poets uh, and uh, two Irish poets. But um, it was really interesting to hear them talk about the concept of home. One of the Ukrainian poets says that he knows a man in a town in the Ukraine. And he says that during his life, that man has been a citizen of five different countries and he's never left that town. Because the borders keep changing. Mm. And, and that's one of the kind of really interesting things that home, we think, you know, and sometimes we think of home as being a place. Mm. But, but actually, it's, it's more a state of mind in some respects. You know, you, you're, I think we think of something like home advantage in, in, in sports events, in football matches and so on. And I see that as being being with the people who we feel we can depend upon. That's thats my kind of idea of home. Now, that, it's, I'm sure Father Peter would say, that's easy for you to say because you have somewhere to live. And, and that's, of course, true. But, but I mean, if you don't have people you can depend on and trust and love, it isn't much of a home. It may be a place to put your head, but it isn't much of a home. Would you give us the... A wonderful piece that you've prepared for us this morning, John. Yeah, this is um, a, a reflection on one of the Christmas traditions. So uh, it, it's called Up in Smoke? Question mark. As a child, one of the Christmas traditions I struggled to understand 
was the transmission of letters to Santa by placing them in the fireplace and watching them go up the chimney. Patiently, my parents explained the mechanics of how it worked. The letters become ashes, and those ashes carry the child's wishes up to the North Pole, where they are dealt with, as always, by Santa. I did wonder, from time to time, what would happen if the ashes of my letter became mixed up with the ashes of, well, a discarded flyer from your local pizza shop? <laughs> what would Santa make of a special offer on a 12-inch pepperoni? The answer, my parents assured me, is like the answer to all the questions about Santa. Santa just is, and you just have to trust him. And if you do, things usually work out. Does this sound familiar? What are these letters anyway, except prayers sent upwards into the cloud, as it were, carrying our wishes and desires? And you never know who's listening or who may be waiting quietly to sing back, to join in. In his poem, The Nightingale and the Cello, the poet Mark Roper celebrates how the cellist Beatrice Harrison, while practising in her garden, found herself accompanied by a nightingale, the heavenly duet going out across the airwaves into space. Another musician, the late lamented Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac, described her exquisite piece, Songbird, as a sort of little prayer for everybody. The song came to her one night almost out of nowhere, which I suppose is how the big man operates on Christmas Eve as well. Inspiration, like Yeats's piece, sometimes comes dropping slow and sometimes comes when you least expect it. The Japanese physicist Yukichira Nakaya made the study of glaciology his life's work. A museum bearing his name is called the Museum of Snow and Ice. And, famously, he described those white falling crystals in words that bring us back to messages, to questions offered up and answers returned. Snowflakes, he said, are letters sent from heaven. Happy Christmas. What an absolutely fantastic piece. Thank you very much. Being reminded of the abundance, the endless source, is something wonderful that you have uh, brought us back to this morning. Thank you very much. Um, and now we turn to Blown and Murphy, the director of the Palestrina Choir and the Girls' Choirs at St Mary's Pro Cathedral. She's getting ready for Mass at 9.30. Blonard, you're very welcome to the Christmas Leap of Faith and Happy Christmas to you. Thank you, Siobhan, and the same to you too. It must be nice to have the choirs back, able to sing in person. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. It was such a sort of dearth of, you know, of tradition and of celebration in the last couple of years that it's particularly joyful, I think, this year. It must be very busy for you in, in this Christmas morning and it probably has been for several weeks. It's been a pretty crazy time. The girls themselves have been busy. They sang at the Advent Carol Service at the Pro Cathedral on the first Sunday of Advent and they also sang at the National Gallery and they sang a concert in St Anne's in Dawson Street. So the girls themselves have been busy, but yes, I've been pretty busy, I think it's fair to say. 
So you're going to lead us now in The Little Road to Bethlehem. Could you tell us a bit about that piece? Well, it's a most beautiful piece by Michael Head. He wrote lots of arrangements of this, but this is the upper voice one, which I think is actually the nicest. It's very infused with uh, references to nature and there's a very beautiful harmonies and sound and I think uh, to me it's sort of in a, uh, in a more subdued way than some of the festive carols it embodies the, the loveliness and the generosity of Christmas Fantastic, well thank you very much for bringing it to us this morning amid everything else that you have on and uh, let's hear it now That was The Little Road to Bethlehem by St Mary's Pro-Cathedral Girls Choir, directed by Blorne and Murphy with Niall Kinsler on piano. And I'm delighted to be joined by two members of that choir, Amy Adams and Cleana Barrett, who are having a very busy morning as they will shortly be singing again for the 9.30 Mass at the Pro-Cathedral in Dublin You're very welcome to our Christmas Leap of Faith and Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas. (laughs) So, how long have you both been in the choir? Um, I've been here since second class, so it's been a long time. (laughs) I'm fourth year now. Yeah, and what about you, Cleona? I've been in since first class. 
And even, I'm in fourth year as well. Yeah, so even longer. And you have a long tradition in your family. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, you, you're yeah. not the first to no. sing in the pro cathedral choirs. Um, my brothers and sisters have all been through. I'm now the seventh to go through and there's two more still younger than me. Have you heard yourselves singing on a recording or do you only get to hear yourselves in situ, you know, like when you're in the choir? Do you know what you sound like? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can say that from having been in the cathedral, you sound amazing and it really brings Thanks. a huge difference to, to what's going on in the services. Well, I hope the rest of the day goes really well for you. And thank you so much for thank coming you. in. Thank you. The thank you very much. And now we're joined by best-selling author Roisin Meany, who this year was shortlisted for the Library Association of Ireland Author of the Year category at the Ampost Irish Book Awards. Her latest book, Life Before Us, was published earlier this year. She lives in Limerick City and contributes regularly to A Word in Edgeways on RTE Radio 1. Roisin Meany, you're very welcome to the Christmas Leap of Faith and happy Christmas to you. Thank you so much, Yvonne, and a very happy Christmas to you and to all your other guests. Roisin, in one way, you've had a very exciting year with the publication of your latest book and it being a bestseller and also being shortlisted for Author of the Year. And many congratulations. Thank you. But you've also had quite a difficult year in many other ways too, um, particularly with a great family loss. Yes, my father died at the end of July. He was aged 95 and three quarters, just to be precise. But his life hadn't been great for the last couple of years. I think he was ready to go and we were ready to let him go. So really it was a blessing. He had a very peaceful and swift death, so that was good too. Yeah, but he is he has left a, a big gap, obviously. You know, we had him for so long and he and Mam were together for sixty seven years. Yeah. Wow. Mm. That's yeah. She must miss him very much. She does. And it, this Christmas is going to be kind of funny. This we'll be having dinner later on and it'll be strange not mm. to have him there for the first time. Most people do feel loss more acutely at Christmas. You know, we I noticed it earlier when people came in and I said, happy Christmas. But of course, for some people, it's not. It takes a lot of effort to find the happiness in it. Absolutely. And I would say particularly this year, there's been a lot of talk already this morning on people who are not at home for Christmas for whatever reason. You know, but but people like Lilo, who I think is great, great person, are really making the best of their circumstances and just making Christmas happen, which is wonderful. And you would be quite unusual as an Irish-born person living in Ireland to have lived in Lelo's home country, Zimbabwe. Yes, I was very happy to hear that a, a woman from Zimbabwe was going to be here today. I um, it, This was before Lelo was born, because I am very old indeed. <laughs> uh, in 1982, two years after I graduated from teacher training college, because I did start life as a teacher, I decided I wanted to see a bit of the world, so I resigned from my teaching job because the career break hadn't been invented and my parents were horrified, horrified, but I didn't care. And I went to Zimbabwe because that's the first offer I got. And I had a great time there. I really enjoyed it. It was beautiful country. Oh, beautiful. it was. 
it yeah. was yeah yeah, yeah. i'm sure you enjoyed your time in zimbabwe before I really everything did. fell apart yes yeah. yes it was full of hope it had just recently become independent you know mugabe had had become the new leader and everyone had such high hopes of for the country yes yeah it's tragic what happened but while i was there i had a great two years um, the people were lovely, so friendly, so welcoming. And the children who, whom I taught and my, my classes ranged in age from kind of 12 to 18 in the one class because it was all still a bit haphazard. Children who hadn't had access to education were now for the first time really getting second level and um, they were so grateful for the teaching, you know, which hadn't been my experience of teaching in Ireland. Not that the children were terrible here, but, you know, teachers were so cherished. They were so respectful. They'd carry my books from one room to another. You know, they were all (laughs) nearly fighting to carry the books. It was great. Is it still like that? Well, it is. Yeah. Yeah. The people still have, they still have the same attitude. And um, I I think like it's lovely, like to meet um, an Irish person. And then you say you're from Zimbabwe. You don't have to say, oh, you know, Rhodesia. (laughs) Yeah. And yes. then you say from Zambia, and then they'll be like, "Are you from Harare or Bulawayo?" But like, "Oh my God!" Yeah, yeah the new names. Well, they're not new anymore. They were brand new. They when were brand I, new when back then. Yeah. yeah, I only knew the city as Harare. That's where I lived. Ah, oh, that's that's yeah. that's like so amazing. Like to to meet an Irish person and say, oh, "I've been to Zimbabwe." I'm like, oh, "All right." Did at Christmas time? Did you? Um, share any Irish traditions with the Zimbabwean children or did they share any Zimbabwean traditions with you? Actually, I didn't spend either of the two Christmases in Zimbabwe. I came home the first Christmas because it was my first time to be so far away from home and I I just thought, (coughs) I'm not sure that I can do Christmas outside of Ireland. So I, I... bought a ticket home. So I spent the first Christmas in Ireland and the second Christmas was a very different experience. I, I went to the Middle East. Yeah, I might be telling you a little more about that later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've brought us a reflection this morning. Yes, this leads us nicely into my (laughs) reflection. I have. There's been so much talk of home in different contexts here today. Home where we were born and brought up and where we love and it's familiar and then homes where we find ourselves for whatever reason. Um, So um, in my reflection, I'm just going to tell you about two Christmases I spent away from home, um, but very, very different Christmases. At this time of year, when people's thoughts traditionally gravitate towards home, wherever home is, and when many undertake whatever journey they need to make to get home, I find my thoughts turning and my heart going out to all those for whom this pilgrimage is not possible. Enforced displacement, for whatever reason, seems doubly cruel at a time like Christmas, and I really wish for happier days for all in this situation today. I spent just two Christmases away from Ireland, But in both cases, it was a choice I made, so my situation was a very different one. The first time, I travelled to the Middle East, to the Emirate of Qatar. I was 24 and accompanying my then-boyfriend, whose parents, Scottish mother, Kiwi father, both worked in Qatar's capital, Doha, and they had invited us to spend the holiday with them. Now, of course, spending Christmas in an Arab country was, in effect, skipping Christmas altogether. Apart from our host's house, which had been decorated in the usual way, with tree and crib and all the trimmings, 
There wasn't a sign of the festive occasion in Doha. No coloured lights strung across the streets. No Christmas music in the air-conditioned shops. No carol singers. No dressed-up Santas. But it was fascinating to be somewhere so different, and I was very glad to have had the experience. I did ring home on Christmas morning to wish them all well, but I didn't quite get the time difference right. So my mother was none too pleased to be woken up at an ungodly hour when she thought she'd left those days well and truly behind her. My next Christmas away from home, almost two decades later, involved a week-long Buddhist retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California while I was spending a year in San Francisco. So you could say it was another non-Christmas with the only reference to the season occurring when one of the Buddhist participants, on hearing the sound of snow sliding off the roof of our log cabin on Christmas Eve, exclaimed, Santa, with great excitement. (laughs) The retreat, it was another very interesting alternative to Christmas, and both of those experiences made me realise that joy can happen anywhere, at any time. This year, I'll be eating Christmas dinner in my mother's house with a few family members. We'll remember those we've lost, especially Dad, so so recently, and one of my brothers, who is 27 years dead this year, but who died on the 13th of December, so he's always in our thoughts around this time. And we'll remember those who are far away, one brother in California, the brother I stayed with when I spent my year in San Francisco, And we'll pray for peace in the world and in all hearts. Lovely. Thank you. Sounds like a lovely gathering. It will be, hopefully, yeah, yeah. Shifra, studying so many different languages and travelling so widely, you also must have had different Christmas Day experiences. How, How have you experienced this day when you've been in other cultures? Well, Siobhan, what's really interesting and following on and what from what Roisin just said is that no matter where you are in the world, you bring traditions with you. And I'm very conscious, for example, of having spent Christmas in France over the years. And one thing that always comes up is that food is a huge part of Christmas. And it's not just eating it, it's the preparation, it's the sharing. And you talked about being in an Arab country. I, where I spend time in, in France over Christmas is actually a very Muslim community. And what's always striking is that they are the best galette des rois. The galette des rois is the, the king's cake that the French eat uh, mm. between the 1st and the 6th of January every year. Mm. And the best galette des rois I've ever eaten is from our local Muslim <laughs> baker in the boulangerie just down the road. And... I have talked to him about this and said, you know, this is this is beautiful, but, you know, you close on Fridays. You're a Muslim believer. Um, what, what makes you enter into this tradition? And he said, this for me is not about religion. This is about community and belonging. And he observes all of the French traditions because he feels French, he feels local. And it's a lovely story of immigration, emigration, but also that importance of belonging and how food can make us feel like we belong. Um, I often think, for example, my brother lives in Italy and uh, the Italians are, are great for their celebrations like all European countries. But in Italy, there's a huge discussion every year in every single household as to whether the best cake is the pandoro or the 
panettone. <laughs> now for us, uh, as foreigners, of course, both are delicious, but this is a, a huge discussion in any household in Italy. And uh, one of the, the best traditions that I can think of um, over Christmas, certainly again linked to food. And now we welcome back Leisha Kelly. For a second piece, this Christmas morning is going to play with Nelny Cronin. Tell us about this piece. Well, this is a well-known Irish carol and it's um, known as the Wexford carol, the, the Carol Loch Gorman, Ennis Carthy carol, the Kilmore carol. So it's part of those uh, the Kilmore carols. And people will be very familiar with the tune, but uh, Nell is going to sing it in Irish. Is that a, an old version or is that a translation of the English? Um, Caru Luckgarman, I, I think as far as I'm aware that it was um, initially um, in English and then it was translated. But I mean, it dates back centuries and centuries ago. So um, dating any time between kind of the 12th and the 14th century. So it's such a beautiful air and a beautiful melody. Um, but I'm from um, a little village called Bielahangwerhig in the Moosgri Gaeltacht in County Cork. Um, and going to Mass Christmas morning in... Um, Beelong Rehrig, uh, there was a little choir there that I used to sing with when I was younger. And actually, that's the first place where I heard the song and, and learned to sing it. Um, so that's probably when I was maybe 10 or 11. Um, and they still sing it to this day. That's gorgeous. And so thank you to all our contributors on this morning's Christmas Leap of Faith. Blonad Murphy and the Pro Cathedral Girls Choir, with their representatives Amy Adams and Kleena Barrett. Niall Kinsler on piano to Father Peter McVeary, to the Reverend Philip McKinley, Professor Shifra Pierce, Leila Thebby, Leisha Kelly, John O'Donnell, Roisin Meany and Nelny Cronin. Thank you all very, very much. I wish all of you listening all the blessings of Christmas. And we leave you this morning with Carol Luckarman, the Wexford Carol Osgeilga, sung by Nelny Cronin with Leisha Kelly on harp. Dashkill, 
Christmas Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan and produced by Sheila O'Callaghan.